Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The Roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th. Hosted by Kevin Hart, the seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. Joe Burrow is supposed to be the next big thing in football. In his first complete injury-free season, he led the Bengals on an improbable run to the Super Bowl. Prognosticators saw Burrow as the second coming of Dan Marino. But now, Burrow can't outscore Mike Mitchell Trubisky or Cooper Rush, two quarterbacks who will be holding clipboards around Halloween. What's the problem? Is Joe Burrow suffering from Colin Kaepernick disease? Kaepernick disease is a deadly form of arrogance, shallowness, narcissism, and wokeness. The disease is triggered when agents, handlers, and media influencers convince a young athlete that their mission is to be more than an athlete. Welcome. Welcome to Fearless with Jason Whitlock. I am Jason Whitlock, your host. Happy Wednesday uh, to you and yours. It is hump day. And boy, do we have a fantastic show planned for you today. Steve Kim, TJ Moe back in studio with me. Uh, Delano Squires, Pastor Anthony Walker here for some Tennessee Harmony. I'm so fired up about today's show. Uh, I'm just going to get right to it because when I have uh, a new idea, a new thought, and I'm first in on something, I get all fired up and excited, and, and people in Cincinnati are overreacting uh, to some tweets that I had about Joe Burrow, and they've forced me to expound on my thoughts on Joe Burrow, but uh, I, I just wanna give you a little taste of, you guys saw over Twitter yesterday and earlier this week on Monday, we were having a discussion about Joe Burrow, and, and, and over Twitter, I made an analogy to Joe Burrow and Josh Rosen, the former UCLA quarterback, and, and then I analogized him to RG3, and I said he was chasing social media clout, and people in Cincinnati are, are going off. My Twitter feed's been lit up for day, uh, the past couple of days with people calling me every name in the book and saying I'm overreacting, but anyway, I just want to give you a little taste of the reaction. Here's Tom Brenneman, longtime uh, broadcaster. Here he is talking about my take on Joe Burrow. I was shocked. Having said that, that, that I'm a fan of his and I like him very much, uh, I was shocked that, 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 that he, would, he would take on Burrow in such a way that for a guy who is highly educated and extremely well-read, that he would make two statements in that whole thing. Number one, uh, the social media thing. Mm -hmm. uh, I think I heard Mo Egger say yesterday on Twitter, Joe Burrow, I think, has sent out four tweets, he said, in the last year. And one of them was a day after the Super Bowl, okay? And I think he said he's posted a total of 10 things on Instagram. That is not a guy who's chasing social media in any form or fashion, right. okay? And then the other part was a Josh Rosen thing. I mean, look, Josh Rosen coming out of UCLA, 
uh, I thought was mediocre at best. He's a number one pick, and the organization that took him just threw in the towel on the guy a year and a half in. Joe Burrow gets hurt his first year. He takes his team to the Super Bowl the next year after leading his college team, by the way, to the national championship. This guy devoted his highest honor and moment as a, as a football player when he won the Heisman Trophy, talking about kids that he grew up with in Athens, Ohio, that, that, that came home every night and didn't have food to eat. I went to college in Athens, Ohio. They had roughly like a $40,000 budget per year in the Athens County Food Bank until Joe Burrow spoke at the Heisman Trophy winning ceremony and talked about Athens, Ohio. They went to 10 or 15 times that budget in one night. There's this guy's heart to take that moment of your life and to remember where you grew up and the kids you grew up with. There's a lot of poverty in Appalachia around there in Athens. He went to Athens High School, a public high school there in Athens, Ohio. He saw poverty and families who were struggling, and he took that moment to remember and try and help people in that situation. Joe Burrow's A-OK. -okay. Yeah. Jason Whitlock, I thank the world of you. But look, on this one, and Lord knows, I've said things I wish I didn't say. I think on this one, I would highly recommend you re-examine the situation because Joe Burrow is on his game, on and off the field. I said it at the time, I said it over Twitter, that I was re-evaluating my position on Joe Burrow. I had reached no conclusions. Y'all have forced me to go to the column, so look, <clears throat> I'm going to say this. I hope I'm wrong about Joe Burrow, the Cincinnati Bengals quarterback. I'm rooting for him. No different from how I rooted for Josh Rosen, Robert Griffin III, Cam Newton, and Colin Kaepernick. I root for pretty much every young quarterback. I want them all to be the next John Elway or Tom Brady or Peyton Manning. Great quarterbacks make sports fun and interesting. So Cincinnati Bengals fans, back off. We're on the same team here. My tweets analogizing Burrow to Rosen, to Rosen and Griffin were not written with malicious intent. They reflect my gut instincts at the moment. They reflected the reality that sometimes young quarterbacks trip over their own egos and sabotage their careers. I pride myself on having a highly sensitive quarterback ego radar that allows me to detect potential problems before others see it. It starts with a gut feeling and then grows. Monday afternoon, during a discussion with TJ Moe and Steve Kim on this podcast, I had a tingling in my gut when we started talking about Joe Burrow. Initially, I attributed the tingling to the thought of eating Skyline Chili while visiting Kings Island's theme park last Saturday. The chili is considered a delicacy in Cincinnati. <laughs> a humane person wouldn't feed that garbage to a dog. But upon review, it wasn't the chili that set off my radar. It was the realization that Joe Burrow has some of the same personality quirks and characteristics as Rosen, Griffin, Newton, and Kaepernick. 
Burrow is off to a horrible start to the 2022 NFL season. Fresh off a Super Bowl appearance, the Bengals are 0-2, having lost to the Mitchell Trubisky quarterback Pittsburgh Steelers and the Cooper Rush-led Dallas Cowboys. Joe Burrow is supposed to be the next big thing in football. In his first complete injury-free season, he led the Bengals on an improbable run to the Super Bowl. Prognosticators saw Burrow as the second coming of Dan Marino. But now, Burrow can't outscore Trubisky and Rush, two quarterbacks who will be holding clipboards around Halloween. What's the problem? Let's investigate. Burrow has tossed four interceptions in two games. Despite a dynamic receiving core, his yards per attempt hover around the bottom of the league. Since he has scored a total of 37 points this season, Burrow has been sacked 13 times. You can blame the sacks on Cincinnati's rebuilt offensive line, but there's more to the story. Burrow doesn't look comfortable in the pocket. He's leaving the pocket too soon, and he's not climbing up in the pocket and helping his offensive tackles. The sacks are a combination of bad O-line play and a skittish quarterback who was sacked 70 times last season. But wait, there's more. Does Joe Burrow have the right attitude? Is Burrow too cocky for his own good? Has he prioritized social justice virtue signaling above football greatness? Is Joe Burrow suffering from Colin Kaepernick disease? The disease killed Josh Rosen in the football wound. The UCLA quarterback entered the NFL with the stated goal of being a social justice champion and complained about the nine teams that didn't draft him in the first round. He lasted one season as a starter in Arizona. Kaepernick disease is a deadly form of arrogance, shallowness, narcissism, and wokeness. The disease is triggered when agents, handlers, and media influencers convince young athletes their mission is to be more than an athlete. The disease has been around for a little more than a decade. Scientists believe the virus leaked from a laboratory in Portland, Oregon years ago when Nike executives at the behest of China developed a formula to make LeBron James the next Muhammad Ali. The league sparked a pandemic across football and basketball. An early symptom of the disease was the desire to kneel during the national anthem. New variants of Kaepernick disease cause athletes to speak out on political issues they know very little about. Joe Burrow recently posted on Instagram about abortion and the Supreme Court's decision to overturn Roe v. Wade. In June, he urged politicians to get those crazy guns off the streets. Back in 2020, during the summer of George Floyd, Burrow and his Bengals teammates made a joint statement standing in front of the National Underground Railroad Museum. Watch for yourself. It is each of our responsibility to affect change in our communities, not only for us, but for those yet to come. We cannot turn a blind eye to the racism still experienced in this country. This is not an issue of politics, but a fight for equality in life. If this nation is to ever reach the goals that it has promised to its citizens, we must be catalysts for change. Look, there's no doubt Burrow has at least a mild form of cap disease. It's not just the wokeness, it's the arrogance, the flamboyance. Those are other telltale signs of cap disease. 
arrogance and flamboyance destroyed Cam Newton and RG3. Like Newton and Griffin, Burrow had a singular spectacular season in college football, won the Heisman Trophy, and entered the NFL Draft amid high expectations. Early in Newton and Griffin's pro careers, my QB ego radar started sending me signals that they would not sustain their early success. Once Cam Newton committed to dressing like the Queen of England, I jumped ship. Remember the little bonnets that he was wearing? Jump ship. When Griffin refused to come out of a playoff game against Seattle, even though it was obvious his injured knee rendered him useless, I jumped off the Griffin bandwagon. I was ridiculed and reviled for arguing that their egos and off-field ambitions would undermine their success. That's what I see potentially happening with Joe Burrow. He wants to be more than an athlete. He wants to be a fashionista. He wants to engage in political discussions. He's distracted and cocky. He's headed down the same path as Rosen, Griffin, Newton, and Kaepernick. Those guys all ignored my warning and continued down the path of destruction. Joe Burrow should focus solely on football right now. He can be a runway model and an uninformed political pundit in his 40s. Now's the time to be a great quarterback. That's my complete thoughts on Joe Burrow. React to that. I, I wanted to wait another week. I wanted to wait to week three before I, I uncorked my full thoughts. But you all have forced me uh, to step out on this limb. This is, this is what I think. It's high risk. I'm not always, always right on these things. But 99 times out of 100, I'm right. There's a problem with Joe Burrow. I hope he course corrects. I really do. But the dude's a little arrogant. Dude wants to be more than an athlete. I just read today he's deleted his social media apps, Twitter and uh, Instagram. He's, he's hopped off the social media thing. So I, I'm just, and again, and I hear all the people, hey, he doesn't tweet much, he's not that active, but he was on there. And the, the stuff, the little woke stuff he was doing was being driven by social media because that's what all the athletes do now, all of their handlers position them in a certain lane so that all they're taking all the little right stances to send out the little bat signals to woke Twitter that, hey, Joe Burrow, he ain't down with this uh, abortion stuff or the overturning of Roe v. Wade. Hey, you know, he, he wants the AK-57s or whatever, the, the AR-15s taken off the streets. He, he's down for, you know, what are, what are, gun safety, what are, or, Gun sensible gun control, yeah. Sensible gun control laws. Play football, man. Leave all that other stuff to the idiots and and to people that think they have it. Leave it to me. I'm one of those idiots. You just play football, because if you don't, this game's gonna humble you. And right now, you're going through the humble humbling process. You can't write up, you can't write off all of his problems right now to bad offensive line play and he can be completely exonerated. There's something going on with Joe Burrow and we've seen it before. RG3 was rookie of the year and the greatest thing going until his ego got in the way. Cam Newton was Superman and the MVP and the greatest thing going. 
till his ego got in the way. Joe Burrow wouldn't be the first flash in the pan in the wrong organization, but kissed way too much to flame out. Steve Kim, uh, welcome back to the show. Uh, am, 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 am I crazy for uh, thinking that uh, perhaps Joe Burrow has contracted uh, Cam Newton disease? I mean, not Cam, uh, Colin Kaepernick disease? You know, Jason, this got me thinking about an old HBO show which flamed out, but we need to have a new one on HBO, a program called Jason in Cincinnati. Wow, you riled up the jungle out there. You know, I, I agree and disagree. Did he start to become more of a persona than a player? Yes. And I said this a couple days ago, I want my quarterbacks nice and boring. Uh, I really don't want to know anything about you except your play and a maniacal desire to win and to be better. And let's go back a couple years ago, uh, that video that you showed. I remember Ryan Tannehill also did one for the Tennessee Titans, and it looked like he was had a gun pointed at his back, and it almost seemed like he was reading a ransom letter saying, yes, um, I need $50,000 in small bills, um, and, and if you don't free him by three, and Black Lives Matter. And I'm thinking to myself, oh, God, this, so, so every white quarterback, every white fr franchise quarterback is almost like they were forced to put up that BLM sign in front of their front lawn saying, hey, guys, if you're going to riot and loot, not this house. You know, we got the sign. So they're like Martha's Vineyard, all of these quarterbacks a couple years ago. And then I would ask all of those players since that video two years later, are any of you guys doing anything in terms of real activism? I, I mean, again, that is a rhetorical question. But I think where you're being unfair is this. Joe Burrow can play. That's, that's the difference. Josh, not the Rosen one. By the time he came out of UCLA, because I saw a lot of his games out here, he was so beat up. He had the quarterback version of PTSD. His reaction time, his anticipation, they were all shot because he got beat up like a pinata. Let me stop you, Steve. Let me stop you. Let me stop you okay. and throw this in. You know which quarterback got sacked 70 times last year and might just be beat up? Joe Burrow. Now continue. Okay. Okay. Uh, so I digress. I will get to that. Now, the other one, RG3, his style was never going to evolve. I mean, that, that style of play is what I call the pet rock. It was a gimmick, bottom line. And when he got smashed up by Haloli Nada, which really was the beginning of the end, you could just tell. Cam Newton, again, never evolved in the pocket. The one thing about Burrow, his style of play will age well within the pocket. But with that being said, you are right. He's getting beat up then. He's getting beat up now. And he's on pace to get sacked well over 75, 80 times. That is simply not sustainable. I looked at the box score a little bit, and this has everything to do with just football. They are over-relying on him a little bit. I think Zach Taylor has to pull back, and there's a guy that they have by the name of Joe Mixon who's a quality running back. Start handing him off the ball and take some pressure off your quarterback, but also, and me and TJ talked about this a couple days ago, Start getting rid of the ball. Start calling quick three-step drops, and you get that ball out and establish a rhythm because half those hits are on the quarterback. So <clears throat> I think it's fair. I was the one who initially criticized him to get us in this conversation. I think it's certainly fair. 
I went to USA Today, not that they, uh, I assume they took these stats from somewhere else, but the, the reason I, I am critical of Joe Burrow right now is because he, we talked about you know, his political stances and all that, but even on the field, against cover two this year, he's faced cover two more than anyone else in the league for mm-hmm. a reason. They've got a game plan on them, right? You play, you play cover two when you don't want to let up the deep ball. They saw what happened in the playoffs last year with Jamar Chase. Against cover two this year, he has uh, nine pressures, taken seven sacks, three interceptions, and no touchdowns. And that's on 35 dropbacks. They're killing him because he doesn't know what to do. I'm not saying he can't read a defense. I think he can't. I think he's not a developed enough quarterback to know what to do to beat certain things. You have to know where to go in cover two. You've got to high-low the corner. You've got to send your, your tight end down the middle and then hit your check down where that middle linebacker has a void. There's a lot of little things in cover two, soft spots in the defense that you should know the moment that comes up. Here's cover two again. Whether they're rolling to it or they set up in it, they're probably playing cover two. You've seen it now for two straight games. They have a game plan on you and he hasn't figured out what to do so he's getting pounded because he's not figured out how to solve the puzzle so this other stuff to me the Colin Kaepernick disease it's all relevant but he's not even good enough to figure out the most popular defense in the NFL of the last 20 years right now when you, you did you say it's irrelevant the Kaepernick stuff no no no, no. Oh. I'm saying that stuff adds to it but I'm saying He's going to fail as a quarterback if he can't figure out cover two. Even if he figures out cover two, this other stuff could cause him to fail. I'm just saying he's got problems on the field right now to compound his off-the-field issues that we're discussing. And so part of what my argument is as it relates to Kaepernick disease is, is like you have some success, and it brings out an arrogance and a confidence, and I got this. And I think it's always important, but it's really, really important early in your career that you have a humble, humble spirit. Now, that doesn't mean you shouldn't play with confidence, but your humble spirit should overwhelm you and be like, man, I'm out here playing in the NFL, and you know, that's great what I did last year, but, but I've seen you know, Josh Rosen have success as a high school quarterback, tiny bit of success at UCLA, and this dude standing up on draft day talking about the nine teams that passed me up are gonna regret it, and I said it that night, I, you can check my Twitter feed, I, I would almost guarantee that night, if the tweets are still around, but I was like, oh, this dude, this ain't gonna go good. This is not gonna go good. I saw, RG3 in that Seattle playoff game is rookie year, when he wouldn't come out of the game, mm-hmm. and everybody was celebrating how tough he was, and I was like, Oh, this dude's ego. He thinks he's taping his uh, Nike uh, commercial. The, the, yeah, Willis Reed, Michael Jordan flu game. I was like, I immediately, you can go, I think I was at ESPN then. I started writing columns about like, oh, this game is a problem. RG3 is going to have problems. Mm-hmm. Cam Newton, when this dude started putting on the bonnets and showing up to every press conference dressed like the Queen of England, I you can go check the tape at Speak for Yourself and the Fox Sports. I was killing this dude. Like, this is not going to go well. This is not what a quarterback and a leader can do in a locker room. This dude's off in la-la land. This thing's too easy for him in his mind. It's going to blow up in his face. I was the biggest Kaepernick fan going. 
I'm just, I love Colin Kaepernick. He reminded me of John Elway, my favorite football player of all time. When the guy showed up at the Super Bowl uh, with uh, a woman he was calling his girlfriend that I happened to know was a, a Las Vegas hooker. I don't know how I knew that, but I just happened to know, just take my word for it. <laughs> I was like, this ain't gonna go well. <laughs> this is not going to go well. And I started backing off the Colin Kaepernick bandwagon. I was like, he's lost his mind. And so I, I'm just telling, it's not personal with Joe Burrow. It, 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 it's, hey, I said it about Jimmy G when Jimmy G, I could have put that in the column, when Jimmy G was uh, gallivanting around uh, Beverly Hills with uh, a porn star. Mm -hmm. Go check the tape of me and Speak For Yourself saying, don't think this is the right attitude. I'm not, he can sleep with whoever he wants, that's Jimmy G's thing. You ain't got to be out gallivanting around Beverly Hills with her. That speaks to an attitude of not being buttoned up, not understanding your position and the role that you play. I'm looking at Joe Burrow, and it's these little small little signs. Oh, this dude wants to talk about abortion. Oh, he wants to talk about guns. Oh, he, he wants to put on the big gold chain. He's got the cigar. He's got all the swag and all the, I'm like, carrying yourself like a wide receiver, bro. This will not go well. This is Kaepernick disease. This is trying to be more than an athlete. It won't go well. It's not personal. I hope he snaps out of it. I hope he pivots and goes a different direction. Deleting his social media is a good start. Uh, but, you know, I'm not trying to. I like Cincinnati. My brother lives in Cincinnati. I, I look, I'm not trying to go to war with Bengals fans. But, Too late for that. Yeah, there's Jason. a problem with Joe Burr. Go ahead, Steve. Yeah, <laughs> I still remember that. As an avid viewer of, of Speak for Yourself, I remember you gave him one of your greatest monikers, Garoppolo. You called him Jimmy G String. That, that has to go on your yeah. mouth, Rush. <laughs> <laughs> the monikers. That, that was a good one. Now, yeah. TJ, to your point about the way the Bengals are being defended, uh, Rudy Carpenter, who had a really good career at Arizona State, had some time in the NFL, he once said to me as a quarterback, Steve, if you're facing cover two time and time again, it's the toughest way to be a good quarterback because you've got to thread that needle. So, And Michael Irvin used to say this all the time on the bench. I've seen films where when he wasn't getting the ball, he would be screaming at his coordinator and his lineman, guys, run him out of the cover two. Run him out of the cover two so I get single high and we get some man looks. And that's why I think Joe Mixon has to be a bigger part of the game plan and really focus in on it. And the other thing is, one thing I've always liked about Tom Brady, he knows how to pick up the loose change. Don't be afraid to just dump it off, go into the flat and take the short game and stay ahead of the chains and be methodical. Because, TJ, I agree with you. There's too many times that I see Burrow, and you can see it. He's trying to hit the home run, and I'm like, you know what? Yes. Hit the single. Hit the single. Make it second and six. Don't get killed because when he came out of LSU, that 2019 season, guys, I thought was one of the two best college football seasons I've ever seen. That in the 1988 Heisman campaign of Barry Sanders. I've never seen two guys dominate for a whole season like that. And I said, this guy can be Kurt Warner, but with better athleticism and mobility. 
TJ, you wa watched a lot of those Kurt Warner games in Missouri as a young man. He got beat up because Mike Martz kept sending five oh, yeah. guys out, and they were empty and naked. <laughs> but there came a point in time, I'm like, hey, be a little bit conservative because less can be more. Now, as for Kaepernick, Jason, here's the issue. He never evolved. I don't think he ever had any arm talent. See, I'm, this is where I'm at a 180 with you. I think Burrow's going through some growing pains, and I think overall that team was a little bit of a mirage last year, the Bengals, during that playoff run. Burrow can really do some things with that football that are special. Is he going through a rough patch? Yes. Does he need to actually scale it back, his per persona and all this other stuff? Absolutely. But in terms of talent and the ability to play quarterback and operate within the pocket, there's no comparison between Kaepernick and Burrow. And I think that's where their career paths are going to have divergent uh, arcs. To your point about what Burrow should be doing in cover two, you, you mentioned that it was Michael Irvin that was complaining about it because Michael Irvin doesn't catch four-yard passes. Michael Irvin doesn't <laughs> catch eight-yard passes. Michael Irvin is going over the top, and he's really upset when there's a couple safeties back there. There are ways to beat cover two. I've never heard Tom Brady complain about cover two in my life. I've never heard him complain about any coverage because there are, it's built in. You've got to do it slower and different than you yep. would. But Burrow, this to the maturity of Joe Burrow, last year he got conditioned to hitting the big play, and that feels mm. good. You got Jamar Chase running down, and it turns you into a superstar, and you get all the highlights. No, but you, there's not a lot of highlights of you going methodically down the field in 15 plays. Even if you threw eight passes, that's just he's become a big shot. If he would learn the game of football, I'm telling you, there, I, I made a career as a slot receiver in cover two because we couldn't go deep. That's when we were coming to me. And you find the soft spots in the defense. You can find them at four yards. You can find them at eight yards. You can find them at 12 yards. You've got to run the safeties out. They're going to be deep, and there's all sorts of room underneath. And he has to be mature enough to take yeah. the, the dump off. And he won't do it. I'm telling you, it's an attitude thing. It, yes, that's exactly right. It's an attitude thing that goes right along with your social media stuff, that goes right along with his BLM announcement, it is he's the guy that needs the attention. There's not a lot of attention in four-yard dump-offs. So I, I want to end this part of the discussion talking about my to take it a little bit off of Joe Burrow and just my contention that we're in this era. I mentioned it jokingly. We're in this era where athletes all want to be more than an athlete. And again, this is all the LeBron James impact on sports. They came up with it, Nike came up with it. They want this guy to be Muhammad Ali. He's not equipped for it. He's not surrounded by uh, brilliant, and I don't care what you think of Elijah Muhammad or, or Malcolm X, I don't care. They were brilliant uh, religious leaders. He's not surrounded by any of that. There's never gonna be another Muhammad Ali. These athletes are too secular. They make too much money. It's just a bad formula. And, and I, the, the whole contention that somehow you have to be more than an athlete. Now, again, if you wanna be a Christian or a father or in any, of, any of that, I'm all for it. But you know, LeBron and the whole more than an athlete means, oh, I need to be an expert on these social issues and I need to make some kind of impact politically and blah, blah, blah. All these things that they're just not capable of. And, and when I say they, I'm, I'm even talking about myself in my younger days and partic particularly when I was an athlete, I was an idiot, I wasn't qualified. 
And, and there's no way the group of people that spend all of that time perfecting their bodies, not perfecting their minds, why are we baiting them into saying, well, you got to be more than an athlete? Do we tell a doctor to be more than a doctor? Is there, <laughs> what other profession do we say, oh, well, you got to be more uh, than a taxi cab driver? You got to be more than a minister? You got to be more than uh, a construction worker? But athletes have to be more, I think it hurts them, and mm -hmm. this pursuit is wrecking a lot of career. Go, do what Michael Jordan did. Go out and be the greatest athlete. All, and then you got the next 40 years to be more than an athlete because you won't be an athlete. You can go be whatever you want to be. So uh, let me give you, a, I agree with every word you just said, so I'll play devil's advocate. What they would say is nobody cares about you as soon as you retire and you've got no effect. So if you're going to make some sort of political change, it'd be now. TJ. Okay, no one cares. Go, go ahead, Steve. Hmm. All right, to that point, you're right, because I've seen this in boxing. But, but I would argue that are we, are we looking for public perception or real impact? Because uh, I'm going to bring this example up again. What is more impactful and real? Doing a hashtag stop whatever or anti whatever or after you retire, buying up businesses and properties that create jobs in your communities and you never get any ink, any media for it. Again, are we looking for social media credit or real impact? Because that's the problem that I have with the whole, I'm more than an athlete. Okay, so that means you're gonna wear a t-shirt, you might kneel, you might raise up a fist, you might do a hashtag, but nobody ever asked this because they're not allowed to, especially if you're a white media member. And then what? And then what? What have you actually done? I mean, that, that, well, Steve, that's what, the thing. What they would Go tell ahead. you is they're trying to change minds, to change votes, to change policy. And okay, so they would right. say, I'm speaking out on abortion to give you an idea. So it's like, I can't go vote for somebody. I can only get enough people to change their mind. Again, I'm agreeing with you guys, TJ, but devil's advocate. I, this I is do what not say. disagree, but the most empty phrase, and I hate hearing this, and I push back against it more than ever. Quote, he's bringing awareness. You know what bringing awareness <laughs> is? Bringing awareness is bringing it up virtue signaling about it and nothing behind it. Bringing awareness is the most empty gesture in the world today. Because if you actually got something done that was real, no one ever just says, well, I brought awareness. No, 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 you actually did something real. Bringing, bringing awareness means actually at the end of the day, you do nothing. That's the reality, it's harsh, it's blunt, but that's why I'm here, to say that stuff, because it's true. <laughs> bringing awareness means not a damn thing. Seriously. Uh, here, here's what NFL players would say. Uh, like, uh, I'm thinking Anquan Bolden, he's a former NFL player. When he was at the end of his career, he launched his second career because he was part of hoodwinking NFL owners into devoting $100 million to some kind of inspired change or NFL change campaign or whatever. And, and they're based, what, what they would say is that, hey, we, we've, uh, campaigned and funded some criminal justice reform initiatives that have taken place in certain states or whatever and so we've done that and and what I would say to the athletes you know had some pat on the back clap for you blah 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 
but but you don't know what you're doing. And and the criminal justice thing is one of the most complicated issues in the history of the planet. And to think that a group of football players, and I used to be one, and a group of people, just because you got a friend that was locked up, doesn't make you an expert on the criminal justice system. And just because uh, your boys from the hood or whatever have been in and out of the penal system or whatever, and you had to put money on their books, doesn't make you an expert on the criminal justice. It's the most complicated thing we do. You're not experts on it. You're being used by people. None of the stuff, and again, all the, the whole defund the police and we gotta reimagine policing or whatever. Huh. And, and, and literally, we're all avoiding the simple solution. And the simple solution, if I, if I, I would love an athlete that wants to be more than an athlete and wants to lean into, I'm gonna go out here and promote the American family. I'm gonna go out here and promote the covenant that God has prescribed for man, woman, and child. That will have real impact. If more people got married, stayed married, raised their kids properly, that's going to have far more impact than some little tweak you've made to the criminal justice system that will do nothing to correct the problem. Because again, we've bail reform. Remember, we're going to bail reform. We're going to let criminals out. And now we're being flooded with videos of all the criminals that have been let out that are out doing incredible damage to our society and other human beings. When we know the real solution is mama, daddy, family, if we committed to that, and if athletes push that, uh, then we'd start seeing, well, we're gonna see a lot less crime. We're gonna see a lot more kids finish high school and college. We're gonna see a lot more kids uh, behaving properly. They won't get, they gotta get behind all these political solutions that, again, if you just study the history of politics from the beginning of time, until now. It's like, good luck with that. And, Jason, and to think you guys are smart enough to lead that is crazy. <laughs> Jason, in terms ahead, of being sir. more than an athlete, it, it's more than one size fits all. A guy that I have incredible amount of respect for, because there's actually action and a real investment into the community. And I don't care what people think of him. I know he's a little bit wacky, zany. He's run into some legal issues. But Marshawn Lynch actually owns properties, and he has started businesses, and he employs people every day i mean he was actually on a bar rescue episode and him and john tapper made some of the funniest tv but I, i'm watching this going i respect that there's a guy who placed his roots down put his money where his mouth is and he has other businesses that have been profiled but it doesn't get a lot of attention that's real activism also you want to talk about being more than an athlete look at people like burgess owens and alan page who had really good nfl careers i think alan page is actually a hall of famer um, Burgess owns a politician. I believe he's been on this program. But you look at Alan Page, isn't he like a federal judge? And that's an incredibly yes. accomplished individual who now when you look at Alan Page, you don't even really think about his days as a purple people leader with the Minnesota Vikings. You think, wow. But that's a guy who had a life outside of football, who has made an impact and actually put his roots down, boots on the ground and said, I'm going to do something significant 
So again, you could be either Marshawn Lynch or an Alan Page or anything in between. The problem is most of today's activism is about assuaging those who are very aggrieved on social media. We have to be honest about that, but it is not real activism. And it's also tied to a check. Now, trust me, they're getting paid as political advocates. There's money involved. The, the whole Inspire Change, they just created an industry, a $100 million industry for uh, athlete, NFL athletes post-career to go meddle in or to do what uh, Democratic politicians tell them to do in the criminal justice system. And, and so really, the NFL is financing $100 million worth of criminal justice reform so that a lot of athletes can go out and advocate uh, for their homies uh, to make sure they got bail reform, to make sure that their sentences get decreased. And, and, and I get it. I'm sympathetic. I know some guys uh, locked up that, you know, I'd like to offer, the, you know, I put money on people's books. I got family members been in and out of jail. I get it. I get how the system is broken and, and in need of improvement. But I know which system is most broken and contributes to absolutely everything that y'all trying to fix on the back end if we don't fix the front end, the family. Mm. Everybody I know that's really caught up in the criminal justice system, you wanna go look at the root cause I'm sorry, it's not racism, it's not the laws on the book, it's the breakdown of family. Yeah. When you violate God's orders and design and plan, there's a cost for that, a real cost. And these are simple things that these athletes should all be able to understand. But we ignore that and uh, wanna go off and do the complex because there's uh, fame to be had. And so standing in front of the National Underground Railroad and wagging your finger at America and we got to stop racism, there's fame in that. There's acceptance and the culture's going to look. But sitting here telling people like, hey, cut it out. Quit having all this random sex. Uh, there's no fame in that. You'll get looked at with funny eyes and, and mean <laughs> mugged and all that, and then even if you just say, even if you soften it up and say, hey man, just put a condom on. They're gonna look at you crazy then. Because no, why should they wear a condom when they could just have an abortion and kill the baby? Why should they do anything responsible at all? Well, and that's why these athletes are the wrong messengers for the message too, right? Because we're saying the athletes should be promoting family. I've been inside these locker rooms. You know all these guys. <laughs> <laughs> Birch, way over 50% of these guys are cheating on their wives. These guys, they're all stepping out. None of these guys, let's not act like the, that these are the right guys to push the family message. They're certainly not. Everything they're pushing is self-serving. You're pushing abort, abortion for the same reason we're saying Dave Portnoy's are pushing abortion. You're pushing criminal justice reform because your buddies are in jail and you want them to come out and hang out with you. You don't, it's, it's anti-personal responsibility. It is give me the easy way out. And all these athletes are doing it. They would be hypocrites, virtually all of them, to start telling us that, you know, what you really need to do is start taking care of your own kids and staying with one woman and not stepping out on her when you go on the road and have the opportunity to. Because these guys are all doing it. 
I have no discipline myself. This has gone longer than uh, I anticipated. So let, let me take care of my good friends at Preborn. I'm gonna let you go, Steve. Uh, we we got to keep it. We got to keep it moving. I was looking for. Let me go look at Steve's uh, approval rating for because uh, we're not going to do it. He gave him a 65. TJ was higher at 66. I was 55. I got candlelit. These guys got grease fire. Uh, I'm sorry. We weren't. We were going to. I wanted to get into this. Steve. Some, TJ gave. You gave Joe Burrow a 20 in job performance. He went to the Super. The man's old for two. Well, yeah, he's terrible. But I went to last year. The season ain't over. That's why we're not doing pool because TJ is crazy. Gave a 20 job performer. That's crazy. All right. Uh, this is not a commercial. <clears throat> Let me get serious here. This is not another endorsement. This is me talking about something that is near and dear to my heart and to all the hearts here at The Blaze. We got to save some babies. And preborn is the way to do it. We got a goal here to save 50,000 babies from abortion. Uh, Preborn is going to help us do it. They've already saved. They've already rescued 188,000 babies' lives. They do it very simply. Ultrasounds. You give a woman an ultrasound, introduce her to that baby, let her know the baby's real. When she sees that baby and it's fully formed life, it's a game changer. 80% of the time after she sees that ultrasound, that woman chooses life for that baby. Preborn clinics are located in the highest abortion areas in the country standing strong for mothers in crisis and introducing them to the beautiful life growing inside of them. I need you to join me, us, in saving these babies. It's one of the most important things we can do, helping to preserve precious life. One ultrasound, just $28. You can sponsor five ultrasounds for $140. Save five babies' lives. All gifts are tax deductible to donate securely all you got to do is call pound 250, say the keyword baby. That's pound 250, say the keyword baby. Or you can do what I do. Go to preborn.com slash fearless. That's preborn.com slash fearless. Let's go fearless soldiers. Let's save some lives. Let's do some good things. I'm trying to entertain you. Now I'm trying to inspire you to do something good today. Go to preborn.com slash fearless. All right, you can email me and us feedback at fearless at theblaze.com. I read all this stuff personally. Love to hear your feedback. Fearless at theblaze.com. All right. I think Milano Squires. You ready? Showtime. On May 3rd, summer starts with the fall guy. Let's do it later. Let's drink a spicy margarita. Make some bad decisions. Yes. Audiences are falling in love with the most entertaining film of the year. Fall guy. Fall guy. Fall guy. That's what the poster said. See Ryan Gosling and Emily Blunt in the movie critics say exists to make you happy. Trying to make it out? Nope. Because I don't either. It's not what I'm into right now. What are you into? Talking. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the Fall Guy. Only in theaters May 3rd. Read it PG-13. All right, welcome back. Uh, let's roll out to uh, Washington, D.C. and bring in our main man, Delano Squire, smartest man on the show. Uh, Delano, I saw an interesting article that I wanted to talk with uh, you and TJ about. 
uh, in the Atlantic. I know you tweeted about this. Separating sports by sex doesn't make sense. This is according to mm. the Atlantic magazine, the magazine that the left, all the smart people and rich people on the left, this is their magazine of choice, their magazine of record. It's kind of like the New York Times of magazines. They're saying separating sports by sex doesn't matter, that, that, uh, doesn't make sense. They're arguing that little boys and little girls should be competing against each other in football, basketball, baseball, whatever. They start off the story with a story, uh, a story of, I think, about a young girl that wanted to play, that played flag football and then wanted to play football with the boys. And they made the kid go through um, a series, the female child go through a series of tests uh, mm -hmm. before uh, saying that she could play. Uh, and and at some point, the, the girl gets frustrated by the test she has to take to play with the boys in football, and she quits. But uh, here was an interesting kind of what I thought was the most interesting setup or nut graph. Decades of research have shown that sex is far more complex than we may think. And though sex differences in sports show advantages for men, researchers today still don't know how much of this to attribute to biological differences versus the lack of support provided to women athletes to reach their highest potential. Wow. And so the articles are, there's no biological differences. Uh, women have been socialized, I guess, since the beginning of time to be weaker than men, smaller than men, come out of the womb smaller than men and boys mm -hmm. and grow, you know, grow on average, I'd say four to five to six inches shorter than men. That's all a part of a social construct. Uh, the, the article's farcical in, in my view, but it speaks to a mindset that's being adopted in America. You've got kids, you've got a daughter. TJ, you've got a daughter as well. Uh, Delano, get us rolling here. Your thoughts on should little boys and little girls be playing sports together? So, so Jason, when, when it comes to small children, right, there are some co-ed teams, and, and my daughter's six and my two sons are four and two, um, and, you know, she can still push them around f for now, but once you get to the point where you're talking about high school sports, right, um, then you're talking about a very, very different set of circumstances because um, unlike the Atlantic, I know that uh, testosterone is not a social construct. It actually does things. So when boys, you know, uh, go through puberty and they're, you know, 15, 16, and they are developing muscle mass, and as you said, they're taller and stronger and tend to have more aerobic capacity than girls. Um, when you take a 16-year-old boy running full speed at a girl, even if she's the same uh, height and weight as, a, as one of her male peers, um, he can do a lot more damage because women are just built different, um, which is which is why we segregate uh, sports by sex in the first place. But um, the, the Atlantic is like every other organ of media and culture, you know, on on the left. Um, it is beclowning itself by adopting you know radical gender theory, and and what it's doing is running a very specific play. If you've noticed, the language around gender has moved from gender dysphoria and you know mental health conditions 
um, to personal pronouns and how people identify. And the final step in this complete colonization is to uh, detach sex differences from biology. So um, I found the writer, I think her name is Maggie Mertens on, online, and on Twitter she said she, she shared an article, I guess that, you know, to, to combat the trolls in which, you know, the article said that, you know, we shouldn't be thinking about sex as a binary. And then I actually read it because I read things that people post in, in defense of their arguments. And the writer of that article, who was a journalist, not, not a medical professional, you know, noted rare intersex conditions and other, you know, disorders. And to them, finding, you know, one in 20,000 people who has, you know, an extra Y chromosome or who has some rare, you know, genetic condition proves that gender is not really a binary. A, a, a binary. But my response to them is like, look, there's some people who are born with more than 10 um, fingers or toes. I actually have a cousin who has an extra digit on one of her hands. That doesn't mean that we should start talking about a six-finger discount, right? So the, the exception to the rule actually reaffirms the rule, not disproves it. So if, if 9,900 uh, 9, people um, out of 1,000 you know, are a particular way, the, the people who are not don't disprove the, the vast majority, right? They don't disprove the 99%. They actually prove that whatever that thing is, 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 you know, is the norm. So, as I said, the Atlantic is like all these other organs of the left. Um, they want to create reality in their own image because they don't want to accept the world that, that God has created. People who write articles like this just want women to be hurt. This is what I can't figure mm. out. It's like you separate men and women because women have a capacity to be hurt by men who are far stronger, far faster, jump far higher. Women are more susceptible to concussions. Uh, men have uh, higher bone density. The, the reason we separated them was not just so that women could experience success because they wouldn't if they competed with men. It's actually for their protection. The idea that a woman could step on a football field and compete with a man is crazy. The, the concern is not whether she could compete, it's whether she could make it through a game and not be injured. And that's the reality. So there should be a pushback by men saying, our job is to protect these women and we wanna celebrate them where they have a chance to succeed. But it's like, you write this article and you, you think you're helping women, you're putting them in harm's way. I saw, I think it may have been Will Kane or somebody else pointed out like, if we go down this path that they're trying to take us down with, hey, let's just have men and women compete against each other. We would never hear of Serena Williams. That's right. All right. She, never hear of Serena Williams. And, and not only, Let's say Serena Williams could potentially be the 1,200th rated tennis player if we all went and it was just a free-for-all men and women. I don't think she would ever rise to number 1,200 because as a child, she would get beat so bad in tennis competing mm -hmm. against men that she would give up or not put as much effort into it. Yeah, it's no different when I figured out, like, oh, my basketball career is over. I'm not going to be much taller than a shade over six feet. Uh, and, you know, I'm going to be too big to be a basketball player. And so I found a way to, like, to quit basketball before I got cut. 
Mm-hmm. And, mm-hmm. and that, that's what happens. You, you look around and, oh, I'm not good enough. Let me back out. Let me focus on something else. And so that's what would happen to a Serena Williams or any woman that's at 10, 11, 12, 13 years old is being forced to compete against boys. The overwhelming majority of them are going to say, I'm not good enough. Let me go do something else. And so you're just going to run real women out of the sport. We've all got to enjoy Serena Williams' greatness. Mm -hmm. She's probably the most popular American tennis player of all time, more popular than any man, a male tennis player. She had an awesome career that's being celebrated, and they're going to erase that and take it away. I, I think the Atlantic and the writer know that this is silliness and madness that they're suggesting, but they must have some strategy behind it. What's the bigger end game that they're playing here? I don't think they authentically believe, hey, this is good for female athletes. What is Mm. the real agenda here? So I I don't know that it's um, a specific strategy, more so it's the, the working out of a particular worldview, right? So you, you see this anytime the left starts talking about equity or diversity or inclusion, the people that they say that they're fighting for end up being the ones hurt the most. Um, with race, this is crystal clear. Whenever they say that they're eliminating some um, academic standard, they may eliminate homework or standardized tests or um, graduation requirements that show that a kid can actually read or do math. They always say that they're doing it in the name of black and brown students. But it's impossible to uh, lower standards and raise performance simultaneously. So same thing in the criminal justice. They, they, they're going to you know, eliminate um, cash bail and, and eliminate um, or abolish policing or, or defund the cops. These, these things always hurt the people who they say that they're working for the most. Um, and I think it's the same thing here. Um, these are people who, who again, probably would claim to be feminist, but to them, you know, feminism or, or uh, women, the, the way that we have always known women to be, the, the very definition of woman is oppressive to people who are men who claim to be women. Um, so I, I think th- these are ideologues, right? These are not strategists. So they, they are trying to work out a worldview in, in the public sphere but it's just it's patently ridiculous to all of us because, you know, going back to, you know, the points that you and TJ are making, you know, Flojo is widely regarded as the fastest woman in history. Her 10.4900 meter time is not even among the top 6,000 for men. And there have been several high school players, uh, high school sprinters who've beaten that time in the last 30 plus years. Right. Same with the WNBA. In 2017, they put out a, a video of every dunk in the WNBA's 20-year history up until that point. The video was one minute and 12 seconds long, right? Half of that time was just Brittany Griner. And most of those dunks were women who were undefended. They literally would clear out the lane to allow the women to, to build up a full head of steam and barely get it over the rim, right? So it's, and I'm not saying any of these things to, to diminish female athletes. The people who diminish female athletes are the ones who think that the, that the true measure of being a great woman is how closely you can resemble a man. And, and that's, that is the danger of this ideology. These people do not respect 
nor appreciate femininity. If they, if they did, they would acknowledge that God has created men and women equal in worth and value and dignity, but different in form and function. And they would just appreciate those differences instead of trying to remake all the rules of the world to act as if those differences don't actually exist. I think there's another side to this too. I think everything he said is exactly correct. I think there's another side of people that are delusional. And that's usually the women who didn't play sports long enough to know that they would get absolutely crushed by men. Serena mm. Williams, when she was asked, hey, do you ever want to play with the men? Do you think you could do it? She said, listen, if I had to play Andy Murray, I would lose in straight sex, 6-0, 6-0, and I'd be done. And, so, and she acknowledged that. She's the greatest woman, not according to you, but a lot, according to a lot of people, <laughs> the greatest tennis player to ever play. And she acknowledged that Andy Murray would beat her in straight sets. That's mm. somebody who's done that. I'll, I'll give you a silly example. My older sister, year older, she was a good athlete, very strong, built, all that. She was convinced that she could play football in the ninth grade. And she went in and had a heart-to-heart -heart with my dad, who, thank God, did not let her play football in the ninth grade because she may not be here today, right? But it's like she, was, she had gone through long enough to think, I can play with these boys. And had we let her do that, she would have been injured, right? And so until you actually do it, Serena went through, played long enough, has volleyed with men in a non-contact sport, much easier to do than in a sport like football, but she gets it. A lot of these people are talking out of their butt. They have no idea. They just say, look, I watch Serena and she looks really good. And I watch her the right. same as I do Roger Federer. And they, they both look good. And I just think Serena could do it. And that's the extent of their knowledge of the sport. You point to delusion. Uh, Delano calls them ideologues. I, 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 and I'm not dismissing either one of y'all's takes. I do think there's delusion. I think there's people that are committed to an ideology that takes, makes them delusional. But I also think there's some strategy behind this. And, and I say this, and I'll put my Alex Jones tinfoil hat on, but someone's paying for this. In terms of, you get an article printed in The Atlantic. Uh, I work, this is the area of journalism I worked in. There, there used to be assist editors would be like, hey, this is silly, we're not publishing this, we're not printing this. But, and I saw the media pivot to where it's like, now actually the sales department's gonna dictate what actually gets published. And, mm. and, and I think that, and this is where I'll sound like Alex Jones, but China's paying for this. There is yeah. a strategy behind trying to so pervert American culture, so drive this conversation of, you know, women are the same as men and, Misogyny is the only reason why women aren't in control and ruling America. And if you really want to uh, show how great America is and how free you are and how righteous you are, empower women in every aspect and things that, that they have. Put them on football fields, make them head coaches, make them quarterbacks, do all that. And over in China, they're doing the exact opposite. They're investing in men and masculinity and pushing that. And so I, I do think there's a strategy. I do think the Atlantic and all these, the New York Times, everybody that's publishing this delusion, everybody in Hollywood that's putting out the Woman King and all these other movies with, and the, the Equalizer on CBS, all of this stuff, all of this messaging that the woman is king, 
is being mm. bought and paid for uh, by China and other adversaries of America, and there's a strategy behind this. And, and again, we, our military, our mm. military is lowering all standards yeah. to make room for female combat soldiers. It's a joke. If we ever get into a conflict, we're going to pay a price for this. And, and I, so I do, I just, I think there's some strategy here, guys, that, because yeah. I don't know if people are this stupid. Hmm. Uh, and, and, you know, I do know some delusional people, uh, but it takes a special level of delusion. I played football. I look out at the, I look out at these NFL players and how fast they're moving, how big and strong they are, and I'm sitting there like, oh my God, I could never. Even at my peak ability at 20, I could never do that. Yep. And yeah. you got remember remember the nonsense a year or two ago when Car, Carly Lloyd or Carly Lloyd, the kicker, the the or mm-hmm. the yeah. uh, soccer player. Remember the, that whole shenanigan? She was going to be an NFL kicker, and then it just went away. Mm-hmm. And, and and no one yeah. has circled back and said, "Hey, Carly, I thought you were going to be an NFL kicker." Yeah. Because it, it's just to drive this conversation and create this delusion and plant these seeds in women's mind that yeah. oh, you're being denied. You should be in the NFL. You should be in the NBA. Uh, no one comes to see WNBA games, but you should be paid just as much as NBA players. They're, they're just driving discontent and a lunacy and a lack of respect for each other. Because I read this article and anybody that co-signs for it, I just don't, they're nuts. I don't respect them. Uh, Delano, <laughs> jump back in here. Yeah, I, I mean, a, a couple quick things. And this is not just a, a man-woman thing, right? All of us but uh, you know, males, right? At some point, you're a teenager, you start to think, I could take my dad, I could take my uncles. Yeah, these guys are old and soft. And then you realize that teenage strength is different than old man strength, right? Because when they when they lay them, and they may not, and none of the guys I'm thinking about, you know, my, my father, his peers, were bodybuilders, but they, they had just developed a different type of strength over time that that me and my peers could not match as 15 and 16 year olds, right? Um, and as you said, Jason, even even with guys who play college football, there's a difference of, of size and strength and speed. Guys who play, you know, one double A, even guys who play in mid-majors, there's always a difference when they step up to the league. Um, or even guys who star in college football, there's a, there's a difference, there's a transition period once they get to the league and they're, and they're playing professionals. And then, and a guy like Johnny Manziel, who could run around and scurry around against Alabama when he tries to turn the corner against what was no, not then the, the Redskins, he get laid out. And then he's realized, wow, okay, the NFL is a, is a different beast. So the, I think those, there's levels, and those levels need to be respected. But I, I have no issue joining you in tinfoil tin, tin hat land by thinking that <laughs> the enemies of America want to see us re- reject the natural order. I do not doubt that at all. I don't doubt that there, there's a hidden hand behind here paying for these things. Um, I sometimes like to use the metaphor that the corporate pre- press engages in what I call media laundering campaigns, right? Where you have, the, the press washes terrible ideas, but they're not necessarily the ones that generate the ideas. They're, they're people behind them ideologues, activists, politicians, academics, 
uh, foreign adversaries who, who generate the, the dirty ideas. They put them into the press for the media to, to launder them because most of them are used for idiots, to be complete, completely frank. They can't even defend these ideas. All they do is repeat them. Go, you know, going back to the show yesterday with Don Lemon, he asked a question about reparations. He, he is smacked in the face with the response, and all he can do is say, oh, yeah, this is, this is a really serious issue, and then he cuts the break. So once a, a dirty idea is laundered in the press, um, washed and declared clean, then everyone, both the people behind the idea and all the other sort of cultural institutions, right, particularly big, big business, can push it with full force to uh, ensure compliance from all of the, the regular people. And this is why when you just post videos, you know, from Libs of TikTok, that show people engaging in this nonsense is libs of TikTok or the people posting them that get um, that get censored, right? So, um, because the press has declared that gender-affirming hysterectomies, quote unquote, are a real thing, and that everybody should get on board with it, and and outlets like the Atlantic um, help in, as I said, washing those dirty ideas and making them clean. So the people that are getting paid off, I think we can all acknowledge that. And then there's the group of extreme idiots that can buy into it. I don't think anybody else buys into this. Because I think everybody inherently knows that they can't keep up with the guy next to them. All these women, I, I'll bring up my sister again. We're seven, eight years old. And we used to, we got along great, but we used to fight like any normal kids. You're one year apart. And we got into some sort of tiff. And I kicked her as hard as I could. I was seven years old, and that was the last time she ever messed with me. I had caught up, and she was like, oh, that did some damage. That's, I, can't, I can't fight with him anymore. And that was it. You've never, never had an altercation since that day. That was at seven years old. I am infinitely stronger today than I was back then. And she's probably not that far off of where she was as a woman, right? It's like the strength difference in what it becomes. And, and we pay attention to little things. We bring this up virtually every time this kind of nonsense comes up. But like the United States women's national team played a 15U team in Dallas in soccer and lost five to two to a bunch of 14, 15 year olds. And so we can acknowledge, anybody with a brain acknowledge, I, I would say 70 to 80% of people, if they had a moment of truth, would say, doesn't matter how much, you can pump these girls up on steroids, it ain't gonna make a difference, they're just not built like the men. The people are getting paid off in the extreme, as Delano said, ideologues, will believe this, I, I don't think this wins over in America. TJ, I, I, well, I want uh, to, that, you just took me to where I wanted to go though, TJ, because I think we just think, well, this is just gonna go away. These ideas are so stupid, it's just gonna go away. I don't believe that anymore. No. And it's because we're gonna have to aggressively confront these ideas and perhaps disassociate ourselves from the authors of these ideas and people that promote it because it's the intent is not in my view for women to play football against men or play basketball the intent is to poison the mind mm -hmm. and it, it's a mind control game and to convince women that your place your role is that of a man and a good man is going to let you into that place. May not be on the football field, you may never play offensive line for the Washington Redskins, but you can damn sure coach uh, for the Pittsburgh Steelers, 
or we can create a little special kicker role for you or, or, or whatever. You can be the, the president of the team or whatever. It, it's, they're winning the long war and they're gonna have to be confronted or men are gonna be stripped of all leadership in this society. That's the end game. Go ahead, Delano. I completely agree, Jason. And, and um, I'll just, on, on, a, on a personal note, part of the reason for the audience that they're wondering why I'm, you know, just all fancy for the last couple of days, right? I'm started a position in, in DC at the Heritage Foundation as a research fellow, and part of my research is on these very issues, right? So I'm looking at this uh, at the nexus of policy and culture, right? I actually wrote about it to, today for, for the Daily Signal. And one of the things that is obvious to me is that conservatives have ceded so much ground in this area because we, we do think, well, 99% of the people in the country think like us. And that may be true, but it's clear that a very small committed force, right, who is willing to push their ideas at any cost can capture a whole lot of territory in a very short period of time. And I, I was actually thinking about this this morning. The way conservatives, both in politics and in the culture, approach this is as a humanitarian effort. So, so we try to say, well, um, we, we, we concede that it's possible to transition from ma male to female, quote unquote. So in order to give, carve out some, some rights for parents, we'll, we'll say that schools have to do X, Y, and Z. They have to inform parents or so on and so on and so forth. And what we really need is a rescue mission to say, if we do not stop this stuff today, our kid, we're gonna lose an entire generation of children, right? We should think like the Rangers, not, not um, the Red Cross, so to speak. Um, and and I, I think that a lot of it has been a sense of complacency that bad ideas are going to lose. But if you have big tech, if you have big business, if you have committed politicians, if you have the academy, if you have entertainment, and you have foreign adversaries all pushing those ideas, it doesn't matter whether they have the masses. What they can do is control dissent. And, that, and that's why if you're a person who gets up and articulates a, a biblical view or a traditional view of marriage, you are the one that has to go in the closet. You are the one that gets kicked off of, of social media. It's not the person uh, you know, like like the, the teacher in Canada who's walking around with the big fake prosthetic breasts, he doesn't have to worry. He's affirmed in the culture. It's people like us are the ones who have to sit on our hands and, uh, you know, practice preferred pronouns and apologize for, for believing in the biblical definition of marriage. So, as I said, we need to think like rangers and not as Red Cross workers. So the nature of conservatism is that we're always playing defense. And that's a hard place to be because you're always conceding ground when somebody gets a minor victory somewhere. And because of where the country has come from, there were some things that needed to be changed. You wouldn't want to keep everything the way it was in 1800. We're actually, I think, in a pretty good position because of people like Delano and you and Matt Walsh and people fighting these battles. We've now conceded enough ground that we can start playing offense to get it back mm -hmm. to where it once was. That makes some sense. And it's been a very long time since I've seen any conservatives play any offense. This is why I'm so excited about Ron DeSantis. He has a laundry list 
of things that he can play offense. There's a reason that he's the most popular governor in America because he's fighting back to get things back to where it was compared to the people that are always playing defense. I actually think we're seated fairly well right now. Interesting point, particularly bringing Matt Walsh into it because this expose he just did on Vanderbilt and to see the Governor Bill Lee and other people call for an investigation. You know, Matt Walsh is certainly playing offense and it seems to be working. The only thing I would say, TJ, again, this will be the final thought. We'll let you go, Delano, or get you guys' reaction and then we'll let you go. But uh, the marketplace of ideas has been so uh, distorted and compromised by big tech. And, and I, I say that because there used to be a punishment. You'd publish a story as stupid as The Atlantic <laughs> did, and people would be like, well, I'm not going to buy that magazine. Mm-hmm. And, but now that it's online, and there is no, you don't have to plunk down $2.50 to buy it. All you got to do is click. And all you got to do is have a system rig to make the story go viral and to force people to click. Because it's such a stupid article, you're going to click. Mm-hmm. Now, would you pay for it? No. But you would click to see, what is this idiot doing? And, and so I just, the marketplace of ideas, and that's what, you know, the, the ideas we sit around and think uh, that, you know, the idea, those bad ideas are going to lose. Mm. I, I think bad ideas because of the way uh, social media and the algorithms are rigged, bad ideas actually uh, have value now. And, and it's not the same as the old days because you publish enough bad stuff in a newspaper, stupid stuff, you look, people just quit buying the newspaper mm-hmm. and then people lose their jobs. Now, because of this click bait society we've gotten the, the rigged algorithms and Facebook gets to decide what's popular what you can see what you can't see oh you want to p- publish a Hunter Biden story well we can de-emphasize it and and mm-hmm. and you know you print the truth we can hide it you print something that's on narrative we'll put it in everybody's face and make it seem like this is what every and and that's I'm rambling now, but that's what they hold. That's what they hold did with the Black Lives Matter movement and the whole police deal. They kept building on the false narrative that police are out there randomly killing black people. They created that whole narrative, and like there's a whole there's a pandemic everywhere you go. The police are killing black men, and people just start keep publishing stories on it. Social media made everybody believe it, and that bad idea. Uh, has completely changed American society. It defunded the police. We got all this chaos and lawlessness, and people don't feel safe, and people don't even understand truly what happened. Because their minds have been so clouded. They, oh, we've we've gone through a racial reckoning because of George (laughs) Floyd, and this has been good, and America needs to talk about race. Meanwhile, you're afraid to leave your house in your own neighborhood because Mm -hmm. the cops won't show up for two hours, but you think somehow we just had this positive racial reckoning. There's a George Floyd statue, but I can't leave my house. And the police won't come if somebody does do something to me because they're scared, but we had a racial reckoning and and we stuck it to the man. Delano, give me final say, then we can go. (laughs) Yeah, as you said, Jason, this is, we don't really have uh, a free marketplace of ideas. 
because there's there's a very visible hand on the scales, right? And this is why when Matt Walsh does what he does, you'll have journalists that that quote tweet him, tag in the FBI and Department of Justice and basically say, hey, he's making people, some people feel uncomfortable. You should investigate him. And, and he's, <laughs> the journalist is doing that because he realizes that most people do not want the FBI, you know, or, or the DOJ investigating them or meddling in their affairs. So they, the, the media in, in, in sort of this Orwellian world that we live in use the, the arms of the state to suppress ideas in the name of democracy. And that's, and that's where we're really where we are now. And the last thing I'll say is this. Um, that movie, Inception, by, from Christopher Nolan that starred you know, Leonardo DiCaprio, is a lot more realistic than people realize. You can, you can take a seed of an idea and, and literally plant it in someone's head and then have that seed you know, bear bad fruit, so to speak. Um, and, and I, real quick story, this happened to me one time. My parents came to visit me over a decade ago um, when they did, and my apartment was almost completely empty. I didn't really have any furniture, so they just came. And the apartment complex had a mouse problem. And my dad realized that there was a mouse in there, and I told him. And he said, man, you better watch out. Mice carry leptospirosis. And I said, what's that? He said, it's a real exotic disease. And then they left, they went home, and about maybe three weeks later, I started to feel a little funny. And I said, oh man, I, I, I think I got something. And I checked myself in at PG County Hospital, and I told them that I thought I had leptospirosis. And the guy, he left me in, in, the, in the room, and he came back with a book, like a medical book. And he, he looked to it, he turned to it, and he said, why would you think you got leptospirosis? This is an exotic, tropical disease that nobody in America gets. I said, well, my dad told me and it was that moment that I realized, one, that I was a fool for listening to my dad and he was playing tricks on me. But two, uh, as I said, a very small seed can produce a, a very, very, you know, uh, rotten crop of fruit. And, and when you tell people, Jason, to your point, that the police are out to get you, if you breathe free air, then you're going to die from COVID or you're going to kill your grandma if you don't wear a mask, you can make people believe some very, very strange things. Thank you, D. Delano, Thank we'll you see you on Saturday. Yes, sir. Oh, that's right. Can't yeah, wait. Delano's He's coming to speak at my church. church. Yeah. yeah. Can't on wait. On Saturday. Yeah, Go to St. Louis. All right, uh, get your Fearless Harmony swag at shopblazemedia.com slash fearless. Tennessee Harmony. Thanks. Time for some Tennessee Harmony. Pastor Anthony uh, Walker is here with us, uh, as is uh, T.J. Moe. Uh, Pastor Anthony, if you could get us started with a prayer, we'll get into this conversation. Father God, we're thankful for this day and thankful for all of your many blessings. Father, we're thankful for this show and what uh, the aim is to do, and that is to lift up uh, your will and your way. Help us in our discussion and to those who are listening. We thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Uh, so TJ pointed this out to me last week. I believe Joe Scarborough uh, was on Morning Joe on his program and made some uh, in interesting uh, 
comments about the abortion issue. Let's play the clip and then we'll get into a discussion with Anthony about it. And, and let me just say, as a Southern Baptist wow. that grew up reading the Bible, maybe a backslidden Baptist, but I still know the Bible. Jesus never once talked about abortion, never once. And it was happening back in ancient times. It was happening during his time. Never once mentioned it for people perverting the gospel of Jesus Christ down to one issue. It's heresy. Go. If you don't believe me, if that makes you angry, why don't you do something you haven't done in a long time? Open the Bible. Open the New Testament. Read the red letters. You won't see it there. And yet there are people who are using Jesus as a shield to make 10-year-old rape girls go through a living and breathing hell here on earth. They've also conveniently overlooked the parts of the New Testament, where Jesus talks about taking care of the needy, taking care of those who are helpless, who live a hopeless life, because they believe, these state legislators believe, that life begins at fertilization and ends at childbirth. He said a mouthful, uh, and I've heard this argument made by others and so that's why we wanted to bring in an expert and and get to the bottom of this uh much if all of what he said i disagree with but that's just my opinion mm -hmm. anthony help us out here uh he says jesus never talked about abortion and so we shouldn't either uh i, I want to do a little teaching uh for just Please. a moment um <laughs> there's a slide that i have that will explain this what Joe did is what sometimes people do when they're trying to make their way around what Jesus and God really teaches. They will parse his words. And so the, the argument that he makes is called an argument from silence fallacy. And what that attempts to do is to conclude what somebody believes based on what they didn't say. So when you look at what he's trying to do, he's trying to come up with a conclusion. And, and I'm going to show you how he has to get to that conclusion just off the premise Jesus didn't say. First thing that he's suggesting is if it mattered to Jesus, then he would have said something about it. Next level is if Jesus didn't say anything about it, then it didn't matter to him. Final level is if it didn't matter to him, then it shouldn't matter to us. And you've jumped all these levels to suggest, well, Jesus didn't say it so, and he's making an argument about the conclusion. The better question to ask from all of this stuff that Joe's trying to do is what did Jesus say? Um, Jason, if, if I were to tell you, hey, I want you to go get me a ham sandwich, you say, what do you want on it? I say, I want mayo and ham. I'm very simple. You can't take from that to say, well, he didn't say he didn't want lettuce. He didn't say tomato. He didn't say dishwashing liquid. He didn't say motor oil like we could go forever and ever. But what did I say? So when we look at what does Jesus say about life in John chapter 10, Jesus says, I have come as he's referring to all of mankind as his sheep. He says, I have come that they may have life and that they may have it more abundantly. That life is 
whole life. It is physical life. It is spiritual life. It is the life in this creation. It is eternal life. Jesus says, I care about it all. So even in this instance where Joe is saying, oh, you know, those who are anti-abortion, they're only talking about, you know, life begins at conception and it basically ends at childbirth. No, he wants your entire life and he wants to make it more abundant. So when I heard the argument, oh, Jesus didn't say and they use it for, you know, Jesus didn't say anything about homosexuality. Uh, Better question is, what did he say? He says, for this reason, Man will leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife. He describes a biblical relationship for those who desire to engage in any sex between a man and a woman, a married man and that married woman. So they're trying to do this um, cunningly, uh, deceptively, but it doesn't get around God's word. So he doesn't make the argument that I hear from a lot of people on the left, and that is that. How do you explain when God has killed children, mm-hmm. right? And so mm-hmm. the, the product of David and Bathsheba, yeah. right? Yeah. Um, even Pharaoh in Egypt, right? Kill all the firstborns. That was one of the plagues, mm-hmm. right? Even in going uh, Amalek, right? Is that how you say it? Mm-hmm. Where he went and said, spare no women and children. Mm-hmm. Kill them all. Mm-hmm. And so that is their argument oftentimes for abortion. You're like, this God you're holding up? You, t- you keep telling me about Jeremiah 1 and 5 and Psalm 139. Yeah. How yeah. about these other verses in the Old Testament? Absolutely. So even that particular argument is trying to paint God as uh, one, some type of bully, but two, if God can do it, we can do it kind of thing. It's kind of these arguments that they're mixing up and they're missing what God really teaches in his word. Death, even from the beginning, is mentioned as a consequence, as a wage for sin. So the wages of sin is death in this world. And that's what we have to look at. So even when we look at, you know, all the crime, all the unfortunate, all the tragic death, all the way back to the beginning, this is introduced into this world as a result of sin. There were times, yes, in the Old Testament that God has used death as a means of punishment. He told David Because of what you did and David, you know, even engaged in this death situation by killing uh, Bathsheba's husband or having him killed uh, Uriah because of this activity. He says not only is that child going to die, but the sword will not leave your house. You'll always have this kind of conflict, Uh, even with Egypt and Pharaoh's hardened heart. This is a sovereign God executing his sovereign rule of which there will at times be punishment as it relates to uh, life and death. But again, the comprehensive narrative of this is what is God's ultimate goal for all of mankind? And he tells us, I want all of mankind to be saved and I want them to have and experience abundant life. I hear that and as I'm prone to do, I've I've personalized it and I don't even know if what I'm about to say is appropriate, but it's just what came through my mind as I'm the wages of sin and I think about, and I've shared on the show that uh, I played a role in an abortion. And, And, you know, obviously I was involved in some sinful behavior and I beat myself up over it and asked for forgiveness and have repented because my behavior 
put a child's life in 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 danger mm -hmm. and without again no knowledge of my own no involvement but the the baby was aborted and i blame myself for that behavior that led to those that consequence and and to some degree i i play a mental game with myself a, not a very healthy one is is i'm almost i, I almost am i plagued by that in terms of Trust me, it was a plan in my life to have kids, and but I was involved in so much poor behavior, a poor approach to relationships and sex, and, and eventually got involved in something that led to a baby being aborted. And, and I, I sit here today, I was like, whew, what I did to myself and what I denied myself things that I think God actually wanted for me and I certain I think would enrich my life that you know I've had to pay a severe consequence for that. Mm. We all do we all have made poor decisions as you're outlining. We've all made those decisions in haste in foolishness and there's always a ripple effect. Um, when I listen to you know what you're saying, I even listen to Joe as he points out, you know, oh, you're forcing these ten-year-old you know rape victims, and and I'm like, wait, we gotta back up, Joe. You're looking way down here. Let's back up. God's design for the family, for all kids. His design is yes, kids should be brought up in a home where husband and wife have committed to God, have committed to each other. And a child is born in this environment of love and provision and care and the nurture and admonition of the Lord. And if we're living by God's design, no, there's not going to be somebody to go out and rape someone. But because we as a people and even as a nation have turned from God in so many instances, you're having all kinds of illicit sex. You're having all kinds of runaway desires and, hey, we can do whatever we want to do. Do as thou wilt, uh, as you often quote on the show. And that breeds these situations where it's, oh, man, what do we do about this little girl? And I'm thinking, man, what about her parents? Hmm. But if, you know, two people that, hey, we, let's do what we want to do. It's late at night and I've had something to drink and, hey, we're going to go. Let's go up to your room, et cetera. Are you thinking about this activity as it relates to what it's going to do to anybody's life? No, I'm just having fun in the moment. But your in the moment can result in someone else's life uh, being destroyed ultimately. So everything we do, we've got to consider God's will and his way and his design. I think there's a distinction to be made here as it relates to you. And I, and I don't really think this is what you were saying, but but this is. The, a thought process for some people. I don't believe that God is punishing us today for mistakes that we made. The sacrifice has been made. That was Jesus. So when we talked about the killing of babies and, and David and Bathsheba, that, that sacrifice was made. That was a punishment for their sins. Our sins have been taken care of. That doesn't mean we don't have the natural consequences, which is maybe what you're experiencing. But I don't think God is saying, sorry, Jason, you played a part in an abortion one time, so what I'm going to do is make sure you never have a family. I don't think that's going on. I Neither do I. I, I but I do think my under, what the understanding I've just like, my behavior put me on a path to where things that were meant for me I don't have. 
and you know I deal with that every day. I, I, I want to. Anthony brought up another point that connects the conversation we were having earlier in the show, and uh, about just family. I just want to piggyback off the point that Anthony's making because this is like again I personalize everything, but I've been making this point forever in terms of when my parents first divorced and me and my brother uh, lived with my mom. We lived in the Shonuff ghetto. And, and when my mother took a second job and moved us out to a, a, a working class neighborhood or whatever, one of the biggest, and this is me being pretty transparent, one of the biggest things, and I was young, I was in third or fourth grade when we, when we moved, uh, the lack of supervision, because there was a lot of single parents in our previous community, and so there was so little supervision of young people and kids. We ran wild. Mm. And our, that running wild led to an approach to sex that was unsupervised. And, kid, and, and so one of the things, when we moved out to this uh, new neighborhood where there were far more parents and there was more supervision, there wasn't the wild sexuality just running rampant. And, and you try to explain, like, there are consequences to the breakdown of family that I don't think people fully understand. Mm -hmm. Kids are meant to be supervised by two people. It works better than one, particularly when you need a job in this society, people going off from work. And so I, I literally said, <laughs> this is somewhat embarrassing, but it, it's actually the truth. When we moved out to this new neighborhood, people would talk about playing hide and go seek. And we played hide and go get it in my old neighborhood. Mm. And that's a whole different game. <laughs> and, and, and I had to like be educated on that. I, I, I'd come from a background yeah. of that, you know, we were kids and doing stuff we shouldn't do. And, and I can remember, I literally had to be educated on how and go seek. I, 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 and that's such a pure yeah. child game yeah. that had been so corrupted in the environment that I was growing up in. And I just, pe people think there's no consequences to this breakdown of family and we can just redo it and disrupt the new, it's crazy. The other point that Joe Scarborough made that I wanted to follow up on, I'd be interested in your take, uh, Anthony, is he talks about, you know, Christians are compelled to do something for people that live in this hopeless life. And, and there's definitely truth to that. We definitely should help the needy, and I, I try to do that. The, the, the thing that where I disagree with him on, or I just want some perspective on, that here in America, I don't think we have a right to feel hopeless. Because even when I was poor and living in the hood, I was never hopeless. And, and, and Joe Scarborough and people sit in their very wealthy chairs, and maybe Joe Scarborough comes from wealth, I don't know, and they think, well, oh my God, if I lived in the neighborhood Jason lived in, I'd be hopeless. And, and it's like, do we have a full perspective that here in America we're, we're so blessed that even our poor, in comparison to poor people around the world, 
uh, we, I just don't think we have a right to feel hopeless and I would never want to tell uh, anybody here in America that you should feel hopeless. Our ground zero is so much higher than most of the other planet that I, I just, it's hard for me to justify a hopelessness because I've been poor and we were never hopeless. We were always thought there would be better days and we worked towards it. I want to shift it from um, just a tangible dynamic or an economical dynamic as it relates to hope and look at it from a biblical perspective of hope. Um, because the, the word that I try to preach and teach uh, is universal. So this word is going to work in third world countries as well as in the ghettos in America. My hope is found, we sing a song, my hope is found in Jesus. Okay, My hope of salvation, of making it. When we whittle it down to our economical circumstances, you know, you talk about growing up poor. I grew up poor. And, and for me, though, I didn't know that I was poor at the time because my perspective on what I was taught that poor and poverty was, was that you didn't have anything to eat. You didn't have anything to wear. That was my understanding of what poverty was. And although what I wore was handed down generations, I always had something to wear. Uh, we might eat, you know, beans and rice on Monday and then have rice and beans on Tuesday and have the <laughs> bean juice and cornbread on Wednesday. Like I always had something to eat. But what was instilled in me from a spiritual dynamic is that your hope is always in God and what God can do in your life. He's not bound by what we're bound by, you know, I, I can only live in today. I can only deal with today. God is in tomorrow. He's in yesterday. He's all all time as well as his resources. There's things he can do for you that he doesn't require money to do. So when we look at this hopeful aspect of God, how you can deliver me as long as he is putting air in your lungs and pumping your heart. He is making an investment in your life. And that's the greatest investment that no one else can match. Our economy, our fame, our money, it will never invest back into me the life that God can. So as long as I've got a you know, breath, I've got hope. And the outlook that he gives me um, in the end of time, and, and you may not have been going this way, but I'll share this. In the end of time, all this stuff is going anyway. Mm. Uh, even when we die, I don't take any of it with me. But what I can leave uh, is an impact on the world and I can desire my citizenship in heaven. And that is far greater than all of this. So the hopelessness, uh, and I understand where you're going from a, from a you know, economical standpoint in this country, you're absolutely right. Having been to some third world places, having been to some places where the change in my pocket could feed a family for, you know, a couple of days, we're tremendously blessed. Um, but I, I don't like how Scarborough, you know, conflates all these issues with what Jesus didn't say and hmm. all of this to make it just sound like abortion is what we need to solve the hopelessness in our country. And that is far from what God has promised us. And that's what you're going to get from a self-described backslidden Baptist, right? <laughs> that's and what he's... This, he told us up front. Yeah. And 
I, I think your distinction is the proper one. Your, your first answer, the original answer of mm -hmm. like, where does hope come from? I was telling Jason yesterday, my brother was a, a missionary in Somalia for four years. It's like, those people were hopeless, mm. and when they found Jesus had hope, right? So these are the people living on less than $2 a day. That's the international poverty line, and they don't yeah. even have that many of them, right? Wow. That's where they get their actual hope. What's crazy is you can have people like Joe Scarborough who live in America with such unbelievably terrible perspective. This guy's got a show where somebody's watching it or he wouldn't still have a show, and he's preaching to the masses that you're hopeless in America. So even from a purely economical standpoint, this guy's an idiot. Mm. Mm. Well, and this is my whole argument about how secular we're becoming and have become is when you t take God away, you're, you're taking hope away. Mm -hmm. and, and hope is probably your greatest resource or is your greatest. When you take hope away, there's no reason to go on. Mm -hmm. And we're denying people the hope, the resource they need to get up out of bed and to, and to go out and pursue life. Uh, anyway. Don't, well, one thing to add to that, this is why you see suicides in the top tier of people. They think forever, money's going to make me happy. Yeah. And then they get it yeah. and they're like, I got no hope. I got no right. faith. I got nothing. I decided this is it. So they jump off a bridge. The, the Bed Bath & Beyond guy just jumped off yes. the building. Yes. He's a CEO. Yep. CFO, whatever he was. Yeah. Right? High paid guy. Big business. Everybody's heard of him. He jumped from a building. And it's not always just stress. It's a lack of hope that these guys have. I know a lot of really happy poor people who have Jesus, and their hope is right there. They're not saying, man, if I can just get that extra $2,000 a month, I'll, I'll finally be happy. They're not doing that. Mm-mm, mm-mm. And that's, that's the whole thing about life and having a life according to God's design. Paul says, there have been times I've had, and there have been times that I have been poor. And he said, I've learned to be content. Mm -hmm. Paul was content with the content in his life, and that was having hope in Jesus. Thank you, uh, Anthony. We'll see you a little bit later today. Uh, that's it and all for us. We'll play some harmony, and uh, we'll see you tomorrow. How did we end up so divided? To be a nation, one united. Now we're headed for downfall. God let your light shine down. What we need more than anything now. Harmony. Let's make a simple vow. Let's come together now. Harmony. Put all your weapons down. Love one another now. Harmony. Time for us to wait. My brother, see through the lies you tell us.